0: Hey, well, once again, good morning. Happy New Year, everybody. Hey, it is good to see you. I hope you're well recovered from last night. as we go in. This is actually awesome to see you. We didn't know doing services on New Year's Weekend how many people would actually show up. All week I've been mentally prepared to teach to 10 people. So it's kind of nice to see all of you here. Hey, if you're joining us for the very first time, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited because we get to kick off a brand new two-week series as we really feel is gonna help us start our year right. So, in preparation of that, if you would open up your program. Inside you've got a white and green message note sheet. That's gonna be a good tool to help you follow along, but you're also going to want to have a pen handy because we're going to mark that sucker up this morning (laughs) because God's going to have a good word for us to say. Let's pray and we're going to get started. Father, we thank you for this year. We thank you for the end of one and the beginning of another one, but ultimately we thank you that you are eternal. We thank you that the truth that God is with us never changes. We thank you that who you are never changes, that it is consistent throughout the ages, that you are good, that you are graceful, that you are forgiving, that you are all-powerful, that you are father, that you are for your children. As we open up your word this morning, as we can begin to see how do we reach more towards you, Lord, Holy Spirit, speak because we are listening. As I often pray, Lord, I pray that as the communicator, I become much, much less. And I pray that you as our Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior, I pray that you become much, much more in our lives. Jesus, we love you and we commit this time to you. In your son's name, everybody said, amen. Amen. All right. Well, it is January. And do you know what that means? It means it's time to put away your Christmas decorations. It means it's time to get the lights down, the trees down, the Advent calendars, the Santa figures, all of it. It's time to put it in a box because if you have your Christmas decor up past December, it's weird. It really is. Now, if you think about it, that's actually part of the magic of Christmas time. One of the reasons why I love Christmas is because it's seasonal, meaning it's special because it only comes out during the month of December. If it was up all year, it would actually, if it was up all year, it would lose its magic. We would become used to it. But like I mentioned, one of the things is we do need to put it away because it's just awkward. If not, as your friend and your brother, If you are one of those houses that has Christmas lights up in March, guys, it's weird. Just take them down. If it's June and your recommendation is to play a Christmas carol, I might punch you. Just know that there's a time and there's a place. Now, while we take our Christmas decor and while we put it in the box, so to speak, there is a temptation we face as well, and that's to not only put the Christmas decor in a box, but to put the message that we celebrate or remember at Christmas in a box as well. If you think about it, what was the message of the manger? That God's son, the Christ child, was born to us was born to save us, was born to lead us, was born to restore us. But again, as we look at the beautiful account in Luke chapter 2, it tells us that the Christ means that God is with us. And during Christmas time, we get to pause and we get to reflect on that. See, we go to church services where we read that beautiful account. We see it in different TV shows. We hear it in Christmas carols. Heck, our kids are dressing up and acting this out in plays We see this message of Christ with us, and when December ends, there's a temptation to put that message back in the box, but the reality is that message that God is now with us is a message that is not simply for one month, it's a message that's not simply for one season, it's a message, it's a truth that is for all of eternity. God is with us. And as we begin a brand new year, we want to begin it with the right foundation, and that is the presence of God is with us, and everything else we will build on that foundation. And that's what this new series is all about. See, as we begin 2017, our hope and our prayer for all of our lives is for 2017 to be a year of substantial spiritual growth. My hope for myself and my hope for you is that 2017 is a year in which your relationship with God deepens significantly, in which your view of God grows and expands, in which your experience of God's character deepens, in which you would look back a year from now and say, man, 2017 was a powerful year in my walk with God. But if we want to make that happen, it doesn't just fall into our laps. It requires intentionality. If we want to grow, we need to do something about it. And that's where the name of this series comes from. If we want 2017 to be a year of growth, then we need to reach after that growth. If we want 2017 to be a year where our relationship with God deepens, we need to reach towards God to deepen that relationship. And over these next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at simple yet profound truth of how do we do that? How do we begin to reach after God to grow and make this a year to remember? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to hit one very simple yet profound truth, and that's this. If we want to grow, the path to spiritual growth is by spending regular one-on-one time with God. The path to growth is by spending regular one-on-one time with God the Father. Now, that sounds simple, doesn't it? And the truth is, it is. But in reality, for so many of our Christian lives, this is something that becomes complicated and difficult and in many cases non-existent. And there might be a lot of reasons why, but often I found in my own life that when I'm not spending regular time with the Lord, it's because I have a significant misunderstanding of what that time actually is, of the why behind the what. And so what I want to do this morning, like we are not going to grow farther than our relationship with God, than in the time we spend with our relationship with God. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to go back to the model of Jesus. I want to go back to his life in the Gospels. And what I want to show you is I want to show you that Jesus models this value and this priority of spending time with the Lord. And I want to ask the question, why does he model this? Why is that so essential in our lives? So if you're following along on your note sheet, you've got a section titled in a, so- in a Solitary Place. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Now prepare yourselves to underline and highlight a bunch of stuff because we're going to mark up our scripture this morning. So as you're turning there, we're going to be starting in verse 21. And what I'm going to do is I'm gonna, uh, first going to build a little bit of context. So here's the story so far in Mark's gospel. We are picking up right after Jesus has just called his first disciples to follow him. So he has gone to the beach and he has called the fishermen to follow him. Now what is happening where we start our story today is that Mark is giving us an account of the next day, day and and a half in the life of Jesus. And this next day or so is Jesus' first entry into public ministry. So we're going to be in a city called Capernaum. We're about 120, 121-ish miles away from Jerusalem. Capernaum was often a home base for Jesus when he was ministering in in the region of Galilee. And it is the Sabbath day, the Jewish holy day of rest. So from Friday night to Saturday night, all ordinary work ceased, All travel, for the most part, ceased. The heart behind the Sabbath was we renewed ourselves by spending community time with our most important relationships. On the Sabbath, we were renewed by spending time with the Lord God. On the Sabbath, we renew our marriages. We renew our family by spending time with one another. On the Sabbath, we renew our friendships and our community by spending time with one another. And one of the most common acts on the Sabbath was to go to synagogue, to experience, to hear the teaching of Torah, the holy scriptures. And often in a local synagogue, what you would get is you get different lay teachers that would come, different scribes or different rabbis that would come. And in this case, Jesus is going to teach on the Sabbath. So none of that up to this point is actually uncommon. But what is, is the response of the synagogue to the teaching of Jesus. And that's where we're going to be picking up our story today. So in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, starting at verse 21. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching. Would you underline or highlight the word amazed? Another way of translating this is the word astonished. The people were absolutely astonished at the teaching of Jesus because he taught them as one who had authority. Would you underline and highlight that word, authority, not as the teachers of the law? So let me stop right there and let's unpack this a little bit. This is less a knock on the other teachers and more a focus onto the amazing power in the presence of Jesus. So if you think about a normal human teacher, think about myself or Michael or Pastor Dave Cox. We come up here and we teach this message and we have a level of authority. But a lot of where we've gained this level of authority has been through studying scholars other traditions, elders, people much smarter than we are to understand the passage, to understand what it's saying, to be faithful to the text. That was true to teachers of the law, of the Torah. They would come and they would teach based on the tradition of the scholars or based on the tradition of the elders. So in a sense, their authority was dependent on outside sources, which is normal. What was amazing about Jesus was that his authority didn't come from outside sources, but it came from within. See, no matter how authoritatively I can teach this word, I'm always going to be capped because I didn't write scripture. And the same was true of their teachers. And now they're listening to Jesus teach his very own words. And it is coming out with a level of authority they have never experienced before. I like to think of it like this. I love music and I love particular songs. And when you get a very popular song, often people do covers of it. And there can be some wonderful and beautiful covers of a particular song. But no matter how wonderful the cover is, there is a spirit in a soul by a song performed by the person that actually wrote it. And that's true of the teaching of Jesus. Here he is with the authority from within that God has given him. And they are astonished. And hear me, when it says that they are astonished, we're talking jaws on the ground going, who is this guy? We have never heard anything like it. So, already, this is a pretty incredible service, and it's going to get even crazier as we continue our account. Verse 23: Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. Would you underline or highlight impure spirit? What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Would you underline or highlight that phrase, the Holy One of God? So an impure or an unclean spirit, in Jewish tradition, unclean was a very, very strong word. It meant that someone someone, or something was ungodly. So this description is telling us that this man is possessed by a demonic spirit. Now what's really unique about this is do you, what is the spirit reacting to? Who Jesus is. See, did Jesus say anything at this point? Did he go, hey, I'm the son of God? No, the spirit knows. He heard the teaching, the authority. The spirit goes, whoa, I'm supernatural. You are clearly the supernatural son of God. And in fear, the spirit is going, what do you want with us? And what's so unique about this is that it uses a very proper title for Jesus. Son, of the, what do you want with us of the most high? Basically, the spirit is declaring in the synagogue, this is King Jesus. Now, quick sidebar here. Two interesting points come out of this. One, it's interesting to me that we find this often when Jesus encounters the demonic, that they refer to him by who he really is. And it's interesting to me that often the demonic refers to Jesus as a king quicker than I can in my own life. But then there's a second thing I want to point out is this also also an accurate picture of spiritual warfare when it comes to Jesus and the demonic. See, often in the Gospels, when Jesus encounters the demonic, they are fearful. They ask, what do you want with us? They cry for mercy. See, sometimes in our culture, we believe this myth that God and the devil are equal That God is the king of heaven, the devil is the king of hell, that they're all fighting over us and there's a 50-50 shot that one or the other is going to win, but we hope that God ends up winning in the end. That's not the picture of spiritual warfare we get in Scripture. The picture and the truth that Scripture has painted is that when it comes to the demonic, Jesus reigns. He is more powerful, he is ultimate, and he calls them into submission. So, As we continue reading on that note in verse 25, Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Would you underline the word sternly? In the original language, it's a way of calling the demonic into submission. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. The people were all amazed. There's that word again. They were all amazed and they asked each other, What is this? It's an honest question, isn't it? What is going on? What is this? A new teacher and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This healing of the demonic, is this not a beautiful picture of what Jesus does in each and every one of our lives? That is the power of Jesus, that he breaks the hold the enemy has on us. He heals us from our sins. He purifies us from the inside out. He restores us to now live in his life. Christ followers in this room, when you gave your life to Jesus, that is what happened. Now, if you were attending that service... This is probably the greatest service you've ever been to, right? They're sitting here going, who is this guy? What is going on? He taught with an authority that we've never heard before. He's commanding spirits. He's healing and restoring people. So if you were there, do you think you would have kept quiet about what happened? No, I probably would have walked out talking to strangers. You're never going to believe what happened at church this week. And that's exactly what happened and spread and word of Jesus spread. Now, it's still the synagogue, and so Jesus, there's still restrictions of travel. So the synagogue must have been very close to the house they were staying at, because he's going to go back, and our story's going to continue. In verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. Would you underline the word fever? And they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. Would you underline that phrase? Took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. Would you underline or highlight the word wait? So let's unpack what's going on here. In Jewish tradition, the word fever didn't necessarily refer to a temperature like we would think of it right now. In fact, the Jewish tradition, the word fever was kind of an all-encompassing word for a lot of different ailments. But more commonly, it was used for one of two things. One, the word fever was used to refer to divine judgment from God. Two, or two, the word fever was used to talk about demonic possession. And so what's interesting is that in Luke's gospel, in the parallel account, he adds a little bit more to it that makes us think that when they say fever, what it's actually saying is that Simon's mother-in-law was also suffering from demonic possession. Now, what does Jesus do in his healing of her? Now, we've seen the power of Jesus in the synagogue. He used his words, right? And so if you think about it, Jesus could have said something across the room. He could have done one of those Jedi hand waves, and she would have been healed. But what did Jesus do instead is that he shows how he approaches his children. He walked up to her. He took her by the hand, and he helped her up. That is a picture of a father showing extreme gentleness and compassion to his children. That is not only a picture of what he did for her, but again, that is a picture of what he does to us. That the Lord heals us in his power, but he refers to us with extreme gentleness and compassion as a good father does. And as she was restored, it said that she then waited on them. Now, it's an easily missable note, but it's very profound that this idea of waiting is not subservient in any way. In fact, in the original language of that word is the same word we translate it to be the word attended to talk about what the angels did for Jesus after his temptation. See, a mark of having been restored by Jesus is that our life now reflects his The life of Jesus is one of service. He is a servant leader. Here, he restored this woman. He forgave her. He purified her. And now her response was to live as Jesus did by serving. What a beautiful picture. And so I talked about how word spread. Well, word spread in this community as we pick things up. In verse 32, that evening after sunset. So Sabbath ends. Travel restrictions were lifted that evening after sunset. The people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, Jesus isn't hiding who he was, but having the endorsement of demons is probably not what you want when you're trying to show people that you come from God himself. So what's interesting about this is, these aren't people that became sick within that day. This is likely people, a community filled with sick and demon possessed, that had been dealing and suffering with this for some time. Try to emotionally connect with the people in this town. Have you found yourself in a trial or a situation in your life? Do you find yourself in one now in which there's no end in sight? Have you found yourself in that situation where you try to find solutions, you try to find answers, you try to get out of this difficult time and no matter what you do, it doesn't seem to work? Have you found yourself in those situations that no matter what you do and all these doors keep closing, that you keep losing hope and keep becoming more and more hopeless? This is likely the mindset of many of these people. See, they didn't know where else to turn. And now because a friend of a friend started talking about this new teacher, this little glimmer of hope turns on and goes, well, maybe, just maybe this teacher can do something. And they went and they encountered the compassion of Jesus. And when it says that he healed many in the original language, it's a better, it's a more accurate representation. It means that he healed the whole community. Again, a father that loves and heals his children. Now, if you're the disciples, this is pretty cool, isn't it? Because you haven't been on Team Jesus for that many days, and so far, it's pretty awesome. He has become a local celebrity he is healing, he has fame and power, you're like, yeah, we picked the right team. So that's likely their mindset going on. And also it's likely that they're probably thinking, well, let's keep doing it. Let's keep healing people. Let's set up tents. Let's have revivals. Let's go and continue to show people what this team is made of. And what happens next is even though that is all good and all well and great things, Jesus is going to model what is the even more important priority than that. So as we continue reading, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Would you underline that phrase, solitary place? See, this doesn't mean a desolate wilderness. In fact, in the Greek, this is the same word to refer to the place where John the Baptist was raised by the Lord, where he taught him. This is the same word to refer to the place where Jesus went to be tempted, but where he was with the Lord. See, what it means by solitary place is that Jesus went to a place in which he would be renewed by the Father and he would be in community with the Father. See, what's amazing about the model of Jesus is that he modeled that his identity, who he is, and his ministry all flows out of his relationship with God. What Jesus said, what Jesus did, all flowed out of his inward relationship with God the Father. He is who he is because of his relationship with God. And that's so key for us as well. And so what happens is the disciples wake up, and I'm sure they're probably eager to get started, to do something awesome, and they find that Jesus is gone. So they start looking for him. As we continue reading, Simon and the companions went to look for him. When they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Would you underline or highlight that phrase? Everyone is looking for you. In the original language, in the Greek, that is not a positive phrase. It's more akin to seeing, saying, what do you think you're doing? See, in their minds, they had an agenda. Hey, we've got some momentum. We've got some steam. Let's go and do the important things. Another way of phrasing it is they're asking Jesus, why are you wasting your time? We have important things to do. Now, let's stop right there. when you look at the reality of what they mean by that, it's kind of easy to go like, man, these guys are kind of jerks, huh? But you know what I find that humbles me when I read scripture? Is that when I see the jerks, when I see the bad guys, when I see the people arguing with Jesus, I find myself relating more to them than I care to admit. Because when it comes to spending one-on-one time with Jesus, do we not often have the, uh, the uh, mentality of the disciples? that attitude? Yes, spending time with God is important. But you know what? I'm going to get to it when the really important stuff is done. And then maybe, just maybe. Because you see, my work needs me right now. My family needs me right now. This needs me. That needs me. Everything's going to fall apart without me. And I need to focus on this. And I know that God says, okay, spend time with me and I'll get to it. But there's more important things to be done. See, in the model of Jesus is that there is absolutely nothing more important than being in the presence of the Father. Especially when you look at it relationally. I find it absurd in my life when I think that I can have a relationship with God apart from spending time with Him. It's the same of me saying I can have a deep and growing friendship with never talking to that friend, or I can have a successful marriage with never spending time with my spouse, or I can be a great parent without ever spending time with my kids. It's absurd that I find myself off in life going, I can have a great relationship with God with never spending time with Him. And the example of Jesus is so powerful for us that our relationship with God has a significant impact to the outward, to everything else we do. To the mission and ministry of Jesus, it flowed out of his relationship with God. The disciples didn't understand it at the time. And Jesus being a great father was amazingly patient, but he gave us this example because one day they would realize, and the hope today is that one day we would realize that as well. And so that's our passage for the morning. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to unpack that big picture truth a little bit more, as well as looking at some practicals of what this means in our life. So if you're following along your note sheet, you have a section titled, What Jesus Models. And the fill-in is this, a deepening inward life is what our outward flows out of. A deepening inward life. Our inward life is our relationship with God. The more that deepens, the more that impacts what flows out of it. And what flows out of it becomes powerful. The less that relationship deepens, the less powerful what flows out of it becomes. If I had to sum up that point in one word, it'd be this word that I'd love for you to write down in your notes. It's the word transformation. Transformation. When we... Are in the presence of God. Think about it. We are in the presence of the creator of the universe. The one who spoke this into being. We are in the presence of the one who recreated the world. Who molded it. We are in the presence of one who created us. Who molded us and our anatomy and our physiology. We are in the presence of the one who parted the Red Sea. We are in the presence of the one who raised his son from the dead. When we are in the presence of the almighty. It is absolutely impossible to walk away from that and not be changed. Think about when you first gave your life to Jesus, when you realized the gravity of your sin, but you realized how much of a bigger deal the forgiveness of God is. When in a beautiful act of repentance, you said, Father, forgive me because I want to live your life now. What Jesus did is he purified us from the inside out. One of the reasons why I love the Bible, something I've mentioned from up here before, is that the Bible's blunt. It doesn't hold anything back. And it says that before Jesus, we were literally darkness. Dead, dark, as bad as it becomes. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are now light. We are filled with his light. We are a life that is a complete and utter transformation. And you are never the same again. And one of the amazing truths in the model of Jesus is that transformation is not a one and done. Transformation was not a single act that happened at your conversion. But the goal as a Christ follower is that we are continually being transformed by being in the presence of Jesus. And not only does that transform our inward life, but that then transforms the world around us. If we are consistently being transformed by the Lord, think of how that is going to consistently transform the world we experience. And that's why the model of Jesus is so key. Man, have you ever found yourself in a situation in life where you kind of just threw up your hands and went, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live through this. I don't know how to be an adult right now. Gosh, we've been there, haven't we? And why I'm filled with joy through the example of Jesus is we were not created to figure this out on our own. We were not created to live independently, but we were created to live in the power and the guidance of the Lord God so if you think about it, when, we, when I'm in the presence of the Lord, I am given the God-given ability to live the life he has set out for me. In some practical ways, when I am in the presence of God, I am given the God-given ability to be a good worker, to be a good employee. When I am in the presence of God, I am given the God-given ability to be a good boss, to lead people well. When I am in the presence of God, I am given the God-given ability to be a good customer, to not be a curmudgeon or jerk to people I come in contact with. When I'm in the presence of God, I am given the God-given ability to be a good friend, to develop genuinely uh, selfless relationships. When I'm in the presence of God, I am given what I need to be a good boyfriend or girlfriend, to be a good husband, wife, to be a good mom, dad, grandparent, aunt, and uncle, whatever that family relationship may be. When I'm in the presence of God, I am given what I need to build genuine community within my church. When I'm in the presence of God, I'm given what I need to be a light, to be a testimony in a non-believing world. When I'm in the presence of God, I'm given the God-given ability to move past sin, to embrace healing, to find freedom. When I'm in the presence of God, I'm given what I need to move past anger, apathy, bitterness, and I could keep going on and on. But do you see that it all hinges? My ability to do any of that hinges on the transformation found in the presence of God. And that's why this is so key. That's why this is so vital to our lives, is when I come before the presence in a one-on-one manner, I am being transformed by the Almighty God. And one of the most important transformations that has to take place is the way I view one-on-one time. See, often we don't do it because we have a really low view of it. We maybe think of spending one-on-one time with God and we think of it as being boring or we think of it being a chore or we think of it being homework or we think of it being confusing. We think of it being this or we think of it being that. And the reality is what Jesus modeled was something completely different. And that is where our transformation begins is to see it as Jesus sees it. See, one of our marks as Christ followers, as renewed, restored creation, is to begin to value what Jesus values, to be passionate towards what Jesus is passionate about, to live out the actions that he lived out. And as we see to Jesus, that one of the highest values was being with the Father. I love how it's put there in your note sheet out of Luke's Gospel. It says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. Would you circle the word often? We see what a priority this was in his life. And again, I love the quote right below it when it talks about why he did it. It says that the desire for secluded prayer makes it plain that Jesus is not a sorcerer working by magic independent of God's help. Help. His authority, strength, and power come from God alone do you want to start 2017 off right? Heck, do you want to start every other year off right? And then it begins by regularly being transformed in the presence of God. And so to understand transformation in a practical sense, we got to look at in what areas does the Lord transform us? And there's many areas, but I think there's three core areas in which being one-on-one with God transforms us. And I want to unpack those a little bit there on your note sheet you got a section titled, Three Areas of Transformation. And the first fill-in is this. The Lord's presence reveals sin. The Lord's presence reveals sin. Now, to understand this transformation, it's important that we have a biblical definition for what sin is. See, sin is much more than just simply doing bad stuff. Again, one thing that I love about the Bible, it's honest and it's blunt. When the Bible defines sin, it defines it as committing rebellion or high treason against our King Jesus. When we choose to sin, when I choose to sin, what I am doing is I am outright rebelling and I am committing treasonous acts against my King Jesus. Let me put it another way. When I sin, what I'm actually saying is, Jesus, I know better than you. I don't trust that you want my life to be happy. I don't trust that you will lead me to good places. So instead, I'm going to do it on my own. Now, the reality is when I give in to sin, I always give in with the myth that it's going to lead me to happiness but I think we've experienced that sin leads me to any place other than that, right? In fact, the whole purpose of sin is to steal, kill, and destroy in our lives. See, it's tempting because it looks good at first. It's tempting because it sounds like a good idea, but then when we engage, it might even feel good for a little bit, but then what happens, it blows up in our face and we're left in a lot of pain. Let me illustrate it this way. A lot of you know I have three young kids, and uh, last week I was driving, and my oldest two, my five-year-old and my two-and-a-half-year-old, they started playing this game in the back seat where they were bonking their heads together and laughing hysterically. (laughs) Now, as I caught wind of this, I kind of look over my shoulder. I'm like, hey, guys, you're going to want to stop because you have thick heads. You're going to hurt each other. So as kids are like, okay, I'm like, okay, and I keep driving. And then just a few moments later, I begin to hear my oldest, my son crying. And I'm like, hey, what's wrong? Are you okay? My head hurts. I'm like, well, why does your head hurt? Because I kept bonking my head against my sister, and now it hurts. Now, let's try to understand what was going on through the mind of my five-year-old there. He heard his father say, don't do this because you're going to get hurt. And in his young mind, he processed this and when I hear what you're saying, but this seems awesome right now. This is pretty genius. How could this ever lead me to pain? And what did he discover? I was right. Now, I like to think that I'm smarter than my five-year-olds, but the most humbling revelation is that when it comes to sin, I'm not. That's me, isn't it? That's us, isn't it? When it comes to sin, God the Father is saying, "I want you to experience the best that life has to offer. I want you to walk in my light. I want to protect you. I'm not trying to restrict you. I want to protect you from from death, from destruction, from pain, from bitterness, from anger. And what do we do as kids? We go. I hear what you're saying, but this seems really good. How could that lead me to pain? And what we do is we end up, we become convinced that this person is going to lead me to glory and happiness, or this lifestyle is going to lead me to glory and happiness, or this substance, or this addiction, or this stuff, or this image, or this career, or whatever the idol is. We become convinced that this thing is going to lead me to untold happiness, is going to lead me to salvation, even though it leads me away away from Jesus, we become convinced, we follow it, and what happens? It hurts a lot. It hurts. The purpose of sin is to steal, kill, and destroy. Ultimately, the purpose of sin is to be the end of our story. Man, what a beautiful truth that because of Jesus, sin is no longer the end of our story. What a beautiful truth that because of his death and resurrection, the risen Jesus has conquered sin. What a beautiful truth that, Christ follower, as you've given your life to Jesus, your identity is not based on your shortcomings, on your damage, on your brokenness. Christ follower, you are not damned by your sin any longer. You are forgiven in the light of Jesus. But I like how Pastor Michael puts it that even though we are forgiven in Jesus, as long as we're on this side of heaven, we still feel this tug to the dark side. We still feel this tug to sin. And sin can still be dangerous in our life. See, what happens is even as a Christ follower, when I choose to sin, what that's doing is that's putting up roadblocks between me and God. When I choose to sin, I'm putting up even more and more roadblocks. And what happens is because of those roadblocks, God starts to feel distant it starts to become harder to hear him, to see him, to feel him. And it just keep being up more and more roadblocks. And the reality is I'm powerless on my own to destroy these roadblocks. So what I need is I need the Almighty One to do it for me. And the power in the presence of Jesus is he shines his light into my darkness. He reveals the sin in my life, not because he wants to guilt me, not because he wants to shame me, but because he wants to free me. Because he wants no barriers between me and the truth of God with us. And so Jesus' presence comes and he restores us. That's why it's so essential, why Jesus modeled this. When we are regularly in the presence of God, he's regularly revealing our sin, and he is regularly shattering those roadblocks. I like how it's put there in your note sheet in 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Would you circle or put a box around the word purify? See, in a biblical definition, to be purified means that we are restored to right relationship with our God. And that is what he does in his presence. And so, practically, what are two steps we can take at the presence of God to begin dealing with our sin? Well, the first step is this. I don't think it's hard for any of us, myself included, to think of a habitual sin we've been holding on to in our lives. To think of something like anger or pride or ego or apathy or dishonesty or entitlement or the list can go on and on. The first step is for us to get into the presence of God and to confess that. To say, Father, this is a sin. I've been trying to justify it. I've been trying to live with it. I've been trying to say, no, it's not a big deal. I have it under the control. But the reality of it is, this is sin and it is a roadblock. And I confess that. And within that step, as we confess, we also come before the Lord honestly and say, I can't do this on my own. I need help overcoming this. And the Lord responds and he reveals next steps to us. And often the next step he gives us is to not walk alone, but to walk with people. Maybe as we confess our sins, the Lord is saying, hey, we need some accountability in our life. Share this with your life group or get in a life group this coming term so that you can have people to hold you accountable. Maybe the Lord's response is, hey, you need to seek out a spiritual mentor, a man or a woman that's going to walk with you that's going to help grow you, that's going to hold you accountable. Maybe the Lord is saying, you need some counseling. You need some time to talk with a therapist or seek some biblical counseling. Maybe the Lord is going to lead you to an incredible ministry like Celebrate Recovery. They meet every week here on Thursday nights on campus, and they're committed men and women to help us find new freedoms in Christ. If you want more information about them, it's in the back of your program right there. But whatever it is, the Lord's next step will lead us to community, to support, to finding purity in our lives. Now, that's the first practical step to dealing with sin in our life. The second practical step is by going before the presence of the Lord and asking him to show me any blind spots that I have. So when I think about my sin, my sin often displays itself in ego. Shocker, right? And with that, my ego likes to try to convince me that I'm right about everything. And with that comes this feeling that I can do no wrong. And so I'm grateful that the Lord has put some amazing, godly men and women in my life to tell me, no, Dre, in reality, you're wrong. But more importantly than that, I'm grateful that in my time with the Lord, that he tells me that as a father trying to correct his child. So what does that look like practically? Like, where do we start? An easy way, a recommendation I would make is to begin by looking at your relationship's By going before the Lord and asking a bold but an awesome question. Father, let's look at my friendships or a particular friendship. Do I have any blind spots here? Is there anything you want to show me about that relationship? Father, when it comes to my marriage, is there any blind spots here? When it comes to my work or my attitude towards work, do I have any blind spots here? When it comes to my children, do I have any blind spots here? Hey, Father, when it comes to that person, I just can't stand. Do I have any blind spots here? Father, when it comes to that person that has hurt me, those people I labeled my enemies, what are my blind spots? Show me so that I can experience new freedom. Being in the Lord's presence reveals our sin. The second way we're transformed, your second fill-in, is being in the Lord's presence reveals identity. The Lord's presence reveals identity. So I talked about my ego, right? Let's continue talking about that. I find that my ego wants to convince me that I am absolutely right about everything. And therefore, my ego wants to conform the world to my image. Therefore, I want to get everybody to agree with everything I agree with, and then we will live in harmony. Do you, re- do you know what I realize about my ego? My ego makes me sound like a supervillain from a comic book. But I think a lot of us can relate with that, right? Now, there's a lot of different ways in which this takes place, but probably the most dangerous way my ego does that is that it distorts my image of who Jesus really is. And so what happens is instead of being the Jesus as revealed in the Bible, I begin dictating and defining what God can and cannot do based on my own opinions, preferences, and my experiences. And so what happens is when I start using a phrase such as, that's not what Jesus would say, or that's not what Jesus would do, that's actually code for, that's not what I would say, that's not my preference, that's not what I would do, I'm pretty sure God would back that up too. And what happens is I'm creating a God in my image rather than conforming my life to be more of His image. But how do you get to know someone? How do you get to know who someone really is? It's by spending time with them. How do you get to know really what makes your friends tick? By spending time with them. How do you get to know what an actual church community is like by spending time with them? How do you get to know this person or that relationship or your child, your spouse, or whoever it is, by spending genuine time with them? And in that time, who they really are, their character is revealed. See, this is what's so important about Jesus' models is that he knows that as we spend time with the Father, that he will reveal to us who he actually is. I love how it's put there by E.W. Tozer in your note sheet. A right conception of God is basic, not only to our systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. The heaviest obligation lying upon the church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is worthy of him and of her. See, when we go before the Lord, when we are in his presence, what happens is we allow God to show us who he is on his terms. His identity is revealed. Now, I don't have the time to unpack that fully. There's a lot there with that. But I want to encourage you, if you go to our YouTube page, just on YouTube search, The Church of Rocky Peak, several weeks ago, I actually taught a message on this very topic called On God's Terms. And there's a lot of helpful tips in there to help us learn to seek God's definition based on his own terms. But what I do want to focus on in this is not only is God's identity revealed, but who we are. Our identity is revealed in the presence of God. Isn't that a fundamental pursuit of life? Trying to answer the question, who am I? Because we know it's wired in us. We're looking for an answer to that question because the answer to that question, we're looking for meaning, value, and worth. The problem is we look in all the wrong places. We look for an answer to that question in our relationships, in our work, in our stuff, in our image. Sometimes even in our hurt, in our addictions, in our damage. We look for anything to define us. And many of us can, can, can relate to this, that some of us have lost years of our life seeking the answer to that question in all the wrong places. But what happens when we are regularly in the presence of God is that God reveals himself to me as his father and he reveals to me continually that I am his beloved child, that you are his sons and daughters, that because of that, you have value and worth because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Gosh, we live in a world that seems like hell-bent on showing us how little we matter. We live in a world that is constantly telling us you only have worth if X, Y, and Z. The reality of being in the presence of God is we are, is that He continually reminds us, don't listen to them. You are my child. And I'm proud to spend eternity with you. I've shared this verse before, but it's one of my favorites there in your note sheet from 1 John. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Would you underline that phrase? And that is what we are. So what does this look like practically? How do we get to know God better on his terms? And therefore, how do we learn more about who we are and who we're supposed to be in light of that? One of the best recommendations I can give you is by start, is starting off by reading one of the four books that tell us about the life of Jesus. We call those the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, if you're just starting off, I'd recommend the Gospel of Mark, the one we're looking at today. It's the shortest of the four. And as you spend time in Mark's Gospel, maybe you'll take it a verse or two at a time. Maybe you'll take it a longer section. Go at your pace. But as you spend time in the Gospel of Mark, what I want you to do is I want you to pay close attention to the character of Jesus. Pay attention to what he said, what he said, excuse me. Pay attention to what he did. Look at events like what we just did where he took the mother-in-law with gentleness and meditate. What does this teach you about who God is? What does this teach you about who Jesus is? And then meditate on the fact, if that's the life I'm supposed to live, what does that teach me about what I now am to do? So as I see Jesus show this amazing gentleness to somebody who was hurting Who can I show that gentleness to? Who can I affirm? Who can I show God's value to in my life? By spending time in his word, his identity and mine is being revealed. The presence of the Lord reveals identity. And the last one is this. The Lord's presence reveals purpose. Purpose is what motivates us to get out of bed in the morning, doesn't it? Many of us have experienced this. If you're, you remember those patches in life when you feel like you have no purpose? They're miserable, aren't they? Because you're like, I don't know what to do. The word I use to describe it, it just feels like you're kind of just floating. You're kind of just there. Let me illustrate it um, this way. Have you ever watched uh, the old NBC show, The Office? Um, I love The Office. In uh, one of the main characters, Jim Halbert, so they're all salesmen at this paper company. So like many salespeople, you earn money based on sales. You earn money on commission. And so that's an underlying theme throughout most of the series. In one particular episode, Jim is on a hot streak of sales. He is making sale after sale, and he goes to his bosses, and they let him know he's reached his commission cap. Meaning he's not going to make any more money no matter how much more he sells. And so he literally says to them, you realize you have taken away my only motivation for working. So what does he spend the rest of the episode doing? Kind of just floating. He starts balancing pens and spoons on his face. He starts making fart noises during meetings. He spends the majority of his day editing an audiobook to mess with one of his bosses. And that's... A true picture of what it's like when we don't have purpose. But the truth is, this is tied to our identity as the children of God. We have a divine purpose in life. We have a divine mission that's summed up beautifully by Jesus. Love God and love people. And one of the most beautiful acts of love we can give to others is by being a witness, by sharing a testimony in word and in action that Jesus loves you and wants to restore you as well. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is there in your note sheet in Acts 1.8. The last words Jesus said before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Would you, under, would you put a box or circle around the word Witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Christ follower, your mission is to be the witness of God in your world. Now think about what it means to be a witness. Being a witness does not mean you are sinless and perfect. Being a witness does not mean you know everything there is to know about everything when it comes to God. Being a witness is simple, but it's powerful. It means that you have experienced God's healing in your life. It means that nobody can ever take that away from you. It means that you are living proof that Jesus is real, that Jesus forgives sins, that he restores lives, that he sets us free. You are an amazing megaphone to an unbelieving world that we have a beautiful God. You are his witnesses. He is proud of you. He chose you to represent him. And now you are his witnesses wherever you go. When you go to work tomorrow or you go to school, you are walking in as a witness of Jesus's power. When you go to your family, you are doing so as a witness of the risen Jesus. When you face those amazing joys, you are doing so as a witness of God. When you face those pains and those horrible lows, you are doing those as a witness of God. Your purpose is to be God's witness to an unbelieving world. See, we are no longer looking for the world to be our purpose. I'm no longer looking for purpose and identity in my career, stuff, or relationships. Now, because I have a divine purpose, all of that is being repurposed for the glory of God. You are his witness, and he is proud of you. And he is with you to the very end of the age. Now, as we talk about transformation, I just have one last question for you there in your note sheet. What initiative are you going to take? We're starting off a new year, and so the question becomes, what are we going to do about being in the presence of God? And as we reflect on that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. You know, as I talked about those three areas of transformation, that being in the presence of God reveals our sins, The being in the presence of God reveals identity, his and ours. The being in the presence of God reveals our purpose. I think that there's one act that beautifully encompasses all three of those, and that's the act of communion. See, when we take communion, we take of the bread, we take of the drink as reminders of Jesus' death and resurrection. As we're reminded of the cross, we're reminded of Jesus' power over sin and death as we're reminded of the cross, we're reminded of who he is, God Almighty, we're reminded of who we are now, his blessed children. As we take of of communion, we're reminded of that cross that reminds us that God has a mission and now we carry out that mission. We have a purpose. And so as we engage in this next song of worship, we're going to take of communion as a family. Now, if you look around, there's tables all around the room. Just in case you get traffic jammed, there's another table right next to it. But as you go before the tables, remember, this is an opportunity to go before the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, thank you that when it comes to pursuing your presence, we don't need to go too far because you are with us. Father, as we go into communion, Lord, remind us of who you are of your power over sin and death, of who you've raised us to be, of our purpose, our value, and our worth. Father, remind us that we're not defined or damned by our shortcomings, but our definition comes in the power of Jesus. Father, as we take part of communion, let us be a joyous act. Let us celebrate that our God is risen, our God is here. Let us celebrate that we get to be witnesses to the greatest truth of all, that God is with us. In your son's name we pray, amen. And that was powerful, wasn't it? It was powerful because we're beginning to feel the transformation the Lord has for us. And one thing I was just realizing as we were singing, as I was experiencing the Holy Spirit stirring, as I experienced transformation, as the Lord telling each and every one of us, he's just getting started. So as we leave this place today, as we begin a brand new year, know that we we leave transformed by the presence of Jesus. May this be a year in which that transformation continually happens, in which you learn more about who Jesus is, who you are. Learn more about his forgiveness of our sins. Learn more about his purpose for your life. Let this be a year in which you are emboldened to be a witness in an unbelieving world, not to be an enemy, but to show them the same God that loves me, loves you too. Amen. Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right along that wall are some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry. They've got some badges to identify themselves. They would love to pray with you uh, before you go. Next week, as I often say, you've got to be here because Michael's going to be here and we've got to at least show up for him. And <laughs> Michael's going to be here and he's going to be continuing uh, the series Reach. I've just been so excited about it. I can't wait for him to continue to uh, continue teach us in this series. Happy New Year. You made it. Welcome to 2017. We'll see you next time.